Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here. Now I'm, I'm patching, patching you in live uh, on my six-month business coaching program. This is module four, or month four, all about survival. So there's realities in business and being an entrepreneur that a lot of people don't talk to you about. All the chaos, all the things that go wrong, all the breakages. All the stuff that if you knew them uh, before you started, you may not even start because you ideally don't want it to be that challenging. But there's a great upside uh, of knowing all the difficulties and challenges and chaos and breakages and legal threats and everything that happen in a business. And that is that you can prepare for them. And when you solve them, you grow beyond and you often beat your competition. You innovate through difficult markets. You grow through recessions uh, and crashes. So it's actually, it might seem like it's a bit negative, but actually, overall, it's very positive that we're going through these steps. And like I said, I don't think that uh, many people will have shared all of these in their entirety. Um, So, yeah, I don't know if you're watching live and you can see the meme. Um, I didn't choose the entrepreneur life. The entrepreneur life chose me. Certainly feel that um, being an entrepreneur is something that is a passion as well as a profession. Um, In the early days of being an entrepreneur, many of us maybe have this um, ideal Maybe naive fantasy uh, that, you know, we can have all the upside and none of the downside. We can have all the passive income and none of the work. All the adulation and none of the customer service difficulties. You know, all the social media reach and none of the haters and critics. And the reality is they are interlinked. You can't have one without the other. Um, and so I'm going to focus on upsiding those downsides, if you like. All right, great. So the, um, the growth paradox then. Uh, so... Um, I think growth is the thing that all entrepreneurs strive for. It's exciting. It's what we want. No one uh, does a plan for next year and goes, I want to decay this year. I want to be smaller. I want to wind down. Okay, you might be forced to because you're retiring or you've had a life, um, you know, life changing situation. But generally, when you're an entrepreneur, it's growth, 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 growth. Now, there's some paradoxes to that. And number one is, um, when is it ever enough? So the first thing to talk about is, for me, it's never enough. And that's okay. Uh, you know, I don't want next year um, to be boring or the same. Now, there's obviously a part of me that's like, well, why does it have to be difficult? And why do we have to have these challenges? And all these things that we set up and are supposed to be systemized and passive, why do they break from time to time? Why do we get these new challenges thrown at us? You know, there's the sort of the lazy ass side of my brain, um, the victim side of my brain, which is there. It's a voice. Uh, you don't ever get rid of it. It's, and it's there to protect you ultimately. Um, so uh, realize that when you strive for growth, which is what every entrepreneur pretty much wants, um, that the paradox is there's going to be challenge that you're not going to like. You're going to act like a child from time to time and want it all to go away and wish away your problems. Um, the faster you grow, the more things break and the more quickly they break. So like you have to accept the fact if you grow more and you get more clients and you get more leads and you get more reach, you get more downside, you get more breakages. And so perfectionists, for example, really struggle with growth because they don't want the downside and they only want the upside. Um, So I guess if you get the fact that the harder you grow, the more chaos there is, um, you know, the more disruption, the more breakages, the more complaints, uh, the more things you have to fix. Um, If you're okay with that and you realize that that's a part of the growth um, model, then I think it helps you um, see the downside of growth and charge for the upside. Now, Generally speaking, a company can grow 50% year on year in its young years. And then when it becomes medium sized or a bit more mature, you might be down to 20% growth. And then when you're a very mature business, you might be 5% growth might be good. So it's probably good to balance your aggressive, you know, 10x world domination growth plans with something that's realistic and achievable, as well as something that's exciting to you. Growth is exciting or the breakages are not. You can't have the excitement without the challenge. Okay. So as you grow, you have to start delegating. You have to start outsourcing all the things that you used to do that you can no longer do because you're overwhelmed. Um, The the growth is exciting. You know, you put money in the bank, you're doing business, you're doing great launches, you're closing sales. But then all that happens is the come down where you have to deliver on this. Now, a lot of people have great intentions as an entrepreneur, 
but they often grow too fast and then can't deliver and keep the promises that they make. And they make these big claims and they do these sales pitches and they can't deliver. And that's obviously really damaging to the long term of your business. So, you, you know, it might be smart to do a bit of planning. OK, I'm going to do a big launch. Um, you know, I want to build a, a new program or a new product. Uh, might I need outsourcing? Might I need help? Might I need a bit of virtu- a virtual PA to help me? If I'm running an event, might I need an event manager? Um, if I'm going to be busy doing all these launches and building my personal brand, might I need an MD? Might I need a layer of management in my team? Now, if you can think of that a little bit in advance, it means you're proactive to the growth, not reactive. Now, look, I'd rather be reactive to growth than not grow. So, um, you know, sometimes I like to ready, fire, aim, start now, get perfect later. I just launched my 40th birthday Forex marketing mastermind. Uh, and I'd been thinking for months, what can I do uh, for a marketing campaign for launch for my 40th birthday? Most people on their 40th birthday have a family get together and, you know, have a surprise party or whatever. I'm not into any of that. I'm pretty unsocial in my social life. Um, but um, but I'd been talking to my team. So I've got a marketing team, about 12, 12 or 15 of us, Harry, would you say, in the marketing team? 15, yep. So we're all brainstorming loads of ideas. We came up with about 50, 60 ideas for months. I was sitting on it for months, thinking about it most days. And I just couldn't quite think, yeah, that's it. That's perfect. Just, and, you know, I wanted it to be sexy and new um, and unique. Uh, and then finally at 8.30 on my birthday morning, it came to me, Eureka, I have the ideal uh, launch plan, the, you know, the, the perfect campaign. Now, I didn't have time because my staff had pretty much not got back to the office to plan this, set up the systems, the, the step-by-step processes, what happens at steps A, B, C, D, and E, what the dates, the details, the logistics are, get my sales team on it, which I normally do. So I just launched it and, and, and did it. I got 240 applications for a 40-person mastermind, and I had, I had to phone every single one because I didn't have time to train my sales team. Now, yeah, that was actually pretty disruptive for my sort of 10 days of doing that. Caused me, well, everything that I, everything else I had to do had to get put on hold. So my, I just had a massive backlog of stuff to do. But it was also really exciting. And I loved it. And I loved speaking to all the clients. And I loved doing the business and, you know, put a quarter of a million quid in the bank, you know, pretty much just like that. And, and so there was a big upside. Um, now, I couldn't quite get planned. I just didn't have the time. But it's better to get it done and then reverse engineer the plan than to not do it. But better than that it is to plan the plan and then launch the programs, whichever way you do it. But you know, do you have a hiring strategy? Do you have a strategy that when you have too much to do, you have um, a contingency plan? Outsourcers, VAs, people on Fiverr.com, onlinejobs.ph or wherever, um, you know, or your first sort of operations manager, office manager, uh, and building your team. And if you can think one step ahead, that will stop some of the break- breakages. Now, you know, growth is chaos. Um, you know, Business is like chaos, order, chaos, order, chaos, order, chaos, order, chaos, order. If there's so much order, there's no growth. If there's too much chaos, there's too much growth. And it's like a cycle. We, we wish it to be a line. OK, there's plenty of chaos. And then when we get order, it's just a flat line of order. Uh, we want that, but I guarantee you would hate that. And that would be boring. And, you know, you'd, you'd just start decaying slowly. And you'd probably end up creating chaos yourself unconsciously and messing things up and disrupting things and creating new programs um, or new products. I tend to do that. I go through these cycles, um, you know, but if you can plan for that and put some management in place uh, uh, and whether that's systems or people, then, you know, it's not as chaotic as it, it, you, you know, it, it usually is. Now, if you're a one man bander, um, you'll end up sinking and you'll end up breaking if you have to take all these things on yourself. So you just have to plan that in advance. OK, the next thing. then. so I think, well, I guess we're on the third point here um, is uh, culture shifts. So when you're a one man band, you can do what you want, when you want. You make a decision uh, at 12 o'clock um, and then you implement at 12.01. And, you, you know, you want the freedom, the autonomy. You can do and say what you want, when you want. You represent your own brand. Job done nice and easy. Uh, and then when you hire your first person, um, you've got to think about them. And you've got to take time out of your daily hustle of doing and actually start planning for their work. And then when they can't get their work done because you've not trained them properly, you've got to take time to train them. But you're busy doing and trying to write systems and trying to plan their work. And then you, then you haven't helped them with their work. And then you think, well, I'm so busy, I can't do that. Why do I have to help them do their job? Why don't they just do their job? But you haven't trained them and you, you, you just get you, like a dog chasing its tail. Um, so the first culture shift is when you have to train, help 
and support another member of staff, whether it's an outsourcer. And you're not just thinking about you and you can't be selfish anymore. And you have to think ahead, whereas you could just think in real time uh, as an entrepreneur. So that's kind of like the first culture shift you'll see. Then you build a little bit of a team and that will hopefully make you less selfish. It will hopefully get you focused on developing their skills and it'll get you thinking about leverage. And you'll realize, actually, if I up my hours by two or three hours, I can get 20 percent more done. But if I've got 10 staff and I get them doing 10 hours a day each, I can get 100 extra hours a day done if I take time to train my staff. So I might get 20 hours a less week done myself. I might go from 60 to 40. But if I take those 20 hours I've saved in the week and I train my 10 staff members or I train one and they train nine because I have a level of management, which is even better leverage, I create 10 times um, 50 hours a week. So I create 500 hours a week extra time to get things done through leverage. Um, and, and hopefully, if you embrace that culture, then you'll get 10, 11 times as much done in, you know, in the amount of time only you had. But then what happens is you have to put a, la- a layer of management in. And this is the second culture shift. So those first five, 10 staff members, they've been used to talking to you, knocking on your office. You've got a good relationship with them. You might go down the gym with them. You might become friends with them. You know, you're very close to them. You're accessible. They love that. There's this family feel. It's this disruptive, boutique-y, you know, non-corporate enterprise who react fast and are dynamic and are thriving and buzzing. And that's great. And then you put a manager in and then they knock on your door. You say, sorry, you have to go and speak to the manager. And then they get upset. And then the manager doesn't quite embrace your values or they're not as dynamic as you, the entrepreneur, or they're a better manager, but they're not a good leader and inspirer. And then some people don't like that culture shift and they complain that it's changing and it's becoming more corporate. And oh, you can't speak to Rob anymore because who does he think he is? Because, you know, his office door is locked and he's just put this person in the way. Um, and some people don't like that. And some people leave and some people, um, you know, encourage others to leave. And then some people set up in competition against you. Uh, and so when you bring that first layer of management in, that is a culture change. And, you know, I'm not saying you necessarily want to be uber corporate, but you do become more hierarchical. You know, it's, it's got quite um, fashionable for enterprises to have a flat hierarchy whereby, whereby there's not really that many levels of management and pretty much most people are autonomous to manage themselves. And that's great. And it's exciting. And you have this sort of culture of intrapreneurship. And, you know, most people want to work for a company like that. But as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, you need layers of management because, it, you know, one person can manage five, eight, maybe 10 people if they're a legend. Can't manage anymore. So that's the next culture shift that you'll find, sort of eight to 12 staff. Then we found the next culture shift was at about 40 or 50 when you put the next layer of management in. And what we found at this culture shift was there's now people, staff in the office who you don't know their names and you're in the toilet and someone goes, all right, Rob. And you're like looking at them going, all right, Dave, you don't know who they are. And it's like, this is my own company. I don't even know who they are. So you, you, another layer of sort of apparent lack of being personal. Um, and your job role changes. You have to start working less and you have to start overseeing more. It's time spent walking around the office, speaking to people, just watching and listening for a few hours a day is really beneficial. It's a high key result area, whereas your natural entrepreneur tendency is to work, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. So you feel a bit like I'm lazy. I'm not doing much work. Do the staff team, the team think that I'm not working so much, but you're overseeing, getting to know all the staff members, keeping them happy. You know, you, can, you, you create a narrative of your ongoing culture. That's something that you've got to express a lot. The next thing that happens, and I always swore this would never happen in my company, but we've got like 80 staff now, and it's just a natural order of the growth of a company is you start to get staff who can hide. You know, when you've got two or three layers of management, someone can hide in the middle and you know, they don't quite do as much as they could. You know, they, they sort of get away with the minimum amount of work because they're sort of sandwiched in the middle and they sort of, you know, like... They could just get away with, you know, not when you can watch everyone and you know what everyone's doing. They can't get away with not getting a good day's work done. So you get this sort of layer of fat and laziness, if you like. And it's not always intentional of the member. Sometimes it's just created. You also get layers of management that don't train layers of management down. You have to have an HR department when you're at like sort of 50 staff. We've got an HR department, which never thought would be something I, I would necessarily have to do. You have to start thinking about staff benefits. You have to look after your staff. You have a lot more health and state, safety and regulation and all those kind of things. Um, you know, I could, I could do a whole podcast and a whole live on that. But, you know, I suppose at this stage, that's probably enough. But you want to prepare for that culture shift. Um, and you, you need to try and keep the feel of when you're a one-man band. You know, we're progressive, we're innovative, we're disruptive. We're, um, you know, we're dynamic. We make decisions quickly. We move quickly. We react to the market. We're, we're always breaking off little boutique businesses and, you know, go, you know, ahead of the times. We create digital agencies and we do podcasts and, 
Um, you know, we're, we're up with the new technologies and we're in tune with our customers, communicating with them on a very personal level. You have to keep that culture. You have to keep spreading that culture through the bigger your team gets. So almost like your job becomes the spokesperson who creates all the narratives for your company a lot. Um, and, you know, that I'm cool with that now. But in the early days, I used to think all my staff looked at me and, and want, you know, some leaders are like, well, I've got to work harder than everyone else. That's what a real leader does. Now, in the Navy SEALs or something like that, that might be the case, but not in a business. You know, like for me, it's about results, not about effort. Now, of course, effort leads to results, but sometimes you work really hard on something you shouldn't be working on. And that's just wasted effort. Whereas if you make five of your staff members feel valued and motivated, well, they're going to go and do an extra 250 hours a month on top of the hours they already do. You can't do that extra 250 hours a month because you're already at capacity. All right, cool. So if you're watching on the YouTube live stream, don't forget to ping me any questions. I'll take them at the end if you've got them. Uh, Thanks for tuning in on the live. I'm going to carry on now with point four, but I'm going to have a quick uh, sip of my non-branded water. By the way, in a few weeks time, we will officially no longer be using plastic. Um, I'm definitely um, in for, you know, the damage that plastic does. So we're getting some new branded water bottles and there will be no more plastic coming from this office. I think that that's really important to move with the program and also to look after our planet. Um, Don't worry, I've not gone too hippie. I won't be going vegan in a hurry. Um, <laughs> just in case you think I'd lost my marbles. Uh, all right then. So should we go on to point five? So, um, point five on, I'm talking about, um, survival of your scaling business or the things that break the disruption of growth. So like when you start as an entrepreneur, you have this naive fantasy. Um, and by the way, it's good to have this fantasy and it's something that can be a reality, but it has to be balanced. This naive fantasy is I'm going to have complete freedom. I'm an entrepreneur. I work for myself. I can do what I want when I want. Um, uh, and then you're like, well, people are going to work for me. I don't want to work for people. People are going to work for me. Um, I don't want a boss. I'm your boss. Now, if you um, think that that is something that is sustainable and scalable and, and what people really want, then you're in a bit for a bit of a rude awakening like I was. So no one works for you. Uh, and I'm sorry if that's what you wanted, but no one works for you. The reality is everyone works for themselves and they use you in their life if you meet their needs and values. So, um, you know, a a lot of people really believe that people should be loyal to them. And I, again, believe that people are only loyal to themselves. Now, if you are, if you relate to their values and get their need, their values and needs met, then that will create loyalty from them into you. Um, But, you know, like if something, like, for example, if someone's, you know, someone's working for you and they're really loyal and then both their children get really ill, they will immediately just leave your job and go and look after their kids. And that's the thing that they should do. So they're loyal to the things that are most important to them. Um, So the first thing I do is I try and hire people where career is quite important to them. Um, Because if career isn't important to them, we're just a a stopgap. We're like a fling. And then they're just going to leave when they get a better offer or a different offer. Um, Whereas if his career is really important to someone, then there's a bit of a a values match there. So um, people work for themselves. You've got to understand why they're working and what needs they want to get met. Now, sometimes it's, you know, they want to get their bills paid. They want to get their mortgage paid. That's cool. Sometimes they want to build a career. Sometimes they want experience from you so then they can go and set up their enterprise in the future. Um, if you understand what their values are, then you can at least create the best chance that you're going to be working together for a very long time. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, when people aren't really doing what you want, that last chance saloon is to pull the trump card out of your pocket and go, um, I'm the boss, you work for me, I'll pay your wages. If you ever say, I'm the boss, or you work for me, or I pay your wages, that means that you have um, succumbed to the base level of um, bribing people to get stuff done. You haven't been elegant or persuasive or planned in your management strategies and your leadership strategies. Um, And you'll probably create a lot of resentment um, because no one wants to feel like that, even if they are employed. The world has changed as well. There's access to a lot more information. Obviously, the millennial generation is a lot more sort of transient. And um, you know, it, 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 you know, I don't want to use the word entitled because I don't believe that all millennials are. But uh, people are definitely staying in careers a lot less. Um, they're definitely um, you know, more loyal to a, a, a sort of a, a free lifestyle. They might have five or 10 careers and you know, they're not necessarily going to stay with the same employer forever. Um, so you know, I, I now believe that I work for my team rather than they work for me. And so if I have that mentality that I work for my team, what they need, I give them, hopefully, um, and the resources that they need, I give them. I'm certainly not perfect. And sometimes, you know, I make mistakes or I get really busy and can't look after them as much as I'd like. But if you have the mentality that you work for them 
then they will probably enjoy their role a lot more. You'll, you'll get a lot more out of them and you'll get a longer term relationship. Now, the next thing then is this freedom. I can do what I want when I want. Well, when you have a staff of 80 people, you can't. And, and I'm OK with the paradox that I have a decent amount of freedom, but I also have a decent amount of responsibility. Now, I know a lot of entrepreneurs are, oh, well, you know what? I just want passive income and complete freedom. And, you know, I don't, want, I don't have to talk to customers. I don't have to deal with complaints and all that. But actually, um, being an entrepreneur is about continually fixing problems that arise every day or every week um, or five times a day or 100 times a day, depending how big you are. Um, so like it's embracing the upside and downside of freedom. You're free because you can ultimately make these strategic decisions. If you needed time out, you could have it. You can, you know, uh, create the culture that you want. You can work from anywhere in the world. So you do have a lot of freedom, but you're also responsible for staff, for processes, you know, for customers, for clients, for your online reputation. So ultimate freedom leads to zero accountability. Um, but hardcore accountability actually uh, paradoxically leads to freedom. Um, I think there's a famous person who was a Navy SEAL that says discipline equals freedom. And it's a bit, a bit of a reverse way of thinking about freedom from the perspective that most people think of. I think it was Jocko Willink who said that. Um, so, yeah, my perception of freedom and my perception of people working for me have completely changed as I built a big business. And I went through the mess in the middle of being a bit pissed off and thinking, bloody hell, I'm actually a slave to all these people. Shouldn't they be working for me? Um, but I'm glad to say that my mindset's changed on that. Uh, and I think that creates a better environment and it takes you through that, um, you know, that bigger level of change. All right, great. The next thing then is as you get a bigger online reputation, you get a brand, you're well known online, you know, you become a bit of a maybe, maybe a bit of a celebrity in your niche or in the wider planet. Um, you know, you, there's a lot of people around you. Um, your management and mastery of your emotions becomes key. Now, I, I can think of many instances a day where I've want to say to someone, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> you know, or um, why did you mess that up when we talked about that 10 times? Or why has this happened when we should be better at this? Or why didn't we plan for this when we've done it a million times? Or, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F. And it goes through my mind all the time because, you know, I'm, in a lot of ways, I'm still that 20, 25-year-old kid I was, which is maybe a bit more refined or I'm just able to think before I speak a bit more. But that's not productive. And, you know, and sometimes this sort of the, the, the sort of the flippant boss who barks orders at everyone, you know, the Alan Sugar, Donald Trump, you're fired type, you know, the Dragon's Den type. This has become popularized, but it's for TV and it's, it's, it's sound bites. You can't talk to people like a piece of shit. You can't if you if you employ people, you can't get your finger out and go, you're fired. You can't fucking do that. You'll be in a tribunal. It just doesn't work like it. it's not real life. It's TV. Um, and, you know, you watch those American sitcoms. If you watch things like Suits. And they're just really aggressive the way they talk to each other. And they just have these arguments. And one talks, uh, you know, really badly. And the other one listens. And then the other one talks really badly. And the other one listens. Well, that's not real life. If you ever talk to someone like that, they're going to interrupt you. They're going to go and defame you online. They're going to aggressively attack you for the rest of your career. You can't talk to people like a piece of shit. You won't get away with it. So you basically, you have to have this valve in your brain, which, you know, like emotionally, you feel like, why is this? hater trolling me online? Why is this critic uh, speaking this nonsense about me that isn't true that could damage my brand? You know, why are certain members of my team not performing? Uh, why are they, um, you know, doing and saying things that put me into disrepute, which isn't true? Why are they gossiping? Why are they making mistakes? Uh, and you have to bottle that and manage that um, emotion and be uh, elegant and be respectful and be strategic uh, and you know, like try and give feedback in a way that empowers people and try and show your strong leadership qualities by being grace, graceful under pressure. Uh, and that I didn't have that when I was 25 because I was just a young whippersnapper. You know, like uh, the, uh, the kind of entrepreneur I was like, like was like was like a dog, hum dog humping a tree, just relentless, like a little one of those uh, tiny dogs relentlessly humping this tree. But of course, you ain't going to make any puppies humping a tree. And that was what I was like. And I used to disguise it as passion. Hey, I'm passionate. No, acting like a twat, uh, you know, just because you think you can is not passion. <laughs> no, that's a different thing. So um, when you can sit, when you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know, I wanted to, I wanted, I, I felt wronged today, but I controlled it and I gave feedback in the right way. And I think I, you know, balanced the critical feedback with actually making, um, being a leader and owning these difficulties. That's when you really grow a business. Now, people really honor and respect that. Um, shutting my gob is not easy for me to do. Uh, and I've had instances where people have attacked me online and they've, they've spouted complete nonsense, even, you know, to the point where it's been defamatory. And I've just kept my mouth shut. And that's a skill I just never had. 
Um, and then, uh, you know, six months, a year later, I get a lot of feedback. Rob, I really respected the way you handled that. Or they, they sort of, you know, like a, a firework, they burnt themselves out really quickly. They exited the industry. Well, after giving it all this and all that, I'm going to be progressive. I'm going to be bigger. You know, we're better, blah, blah, blah. A few months later, they're, you know, they're going bust or they're selling all their assets or whatever. And we're still here and I'm still smiling. I don't even need to say anything. And, you know, not getting involved in fights that aren't worth fighting and focusing and honing your energy on the things that matter, which is training your staff and, you know, creating good content for your um, followers and fans and, you know, building a viable business and having good systems uh, they are the things that you should be investing your time in. And yeah, you know, like we all have that child in us, or as um, I think Steve Peters calls it, the chimp, you know, that voice that acts like a little kid um, and, you know, and reacts petulantly and reactively rather than thinking, hmm, wait a minute, what can I learn from this? Uh, you know, how can I make this good? Is there some truth in this? Often we react emotionally because we're fighting back because something has touched a nerve. Often critical feedback, there's truth in it and truth hurts sometimes. So that's the emotional management and mastery part. Okay, the next then is new competitors entering the marketplace. So again, I'm going to have a little sip of my drink. Uh, and um, if there are any questions on the YouTube uh, feed, I'll happily take it. If not, cool. Buys me a little bit of time back in my life. I'm, I'm cool either way. I hope you're enjoying the live stream. Um, don't forget that um, you can join the Disruptive Entrepreneurs community if you're watching the recordings of the six-month coaching program or if you're watching this live which is where we have the accountability sections and where there's, what, nearly 13,000 uh, disruptive entrepreneurs uh, in that community. Okay, so how do we react to our competition? Um, so in the early days, you're like, I hate my competition. I want to beat my competition. I want to break my competition. My competition are evil. Now, um, having a little bit of that is good. Let me come back to that in a minute, but I'm going to reverse that theory before I go back to that theory. But um, you should not be obsessed about the competition other than to learn from them. You should be obsessed about what you do um, and getting too hit up about your competition or copying what they do or going into markets they do just because they do or getting aggressive with them or trying to beat them down can often mean you're just focusing a load of energy in the wrong place. Um, the upside of competition is the following. Number one is it keeps you honest. Number two, it improves your products and services. Number three, it gets you, um, you know, testing different marketplaces if you um, monitor them and what they do well, you can learn from them. It keeps you honest and humble. Um, it, it gives you new challenge. Uh, it, it creates a wider marketplace. If there's more people in the market, the overall marketplace is bigger. So it's like um, there's a bigger pond to fish in. But it's hard for us to see all those things because we're just like, oh, I hate my competitors. They've come into my space, making my clients, you know, and all this kind of stuff. They're copying me. They're pissing me off. You know, they're no good at what they do. They're shit. Um, so the next thing with com competitors is I think that you shouldn't be obsessed about what they're doing to get distracted from what you do. You should have your own plan, your own vision, your own mission, focus on your own um, marketing and launch strategies, you know, uh, your own culture. But you should be obsessed about learning from them. Uh, now, um, you know, I used to assume that all my competitors were shit and I was way better than them. Uh, and in reality, I am better than my competitors in some areas and they are better than me in other areas now. Obviously, I've been doing this a long time, so hopefully I'm better in more areas than they are, but maybe not. Um, because when you're 12, 13 years old, like we are as a company, you know, you're a more mature business. Whereas when you're one or two years old, you have less fear. I mean, when I had my kids and when my business went over sort of 15, you know, 16 million quid and pushed 20 million quid and I had sort of 50, then 70, then 80 staff, you know, I had a big reputation to lose. I started feeling fear. I started playing a bit safer. Um, and when I was one, two, three years old, I had no fear and I was taking a lot of risks. And I see a couple of young'uns uh, in my marketplace with, the, the, you know, that no fear, gung-ho, brash attitude that I had. Um, you know, and the chimp in me goes, you little bastards, who do you think you are? We're the big players in this. But then actually, um, most um, thankfully now, I'm open-minded enough to think, yeah, you know, like I can see in them what was in me seven years ago. I've got to bring a bit, about a bit more of that back into who I am. I'm 40 years old now. I'm the old dog in this business. And, you know, some of these young ones whipping at our um, coattails, it's, it's re-energized re me. It's excited me. The next thing is I'm going to go and try and collaborate with them for sure. So um, any one of my competitors I want to have a good relationship with. Um, I'm, I'm happy to say there's only one competitor out there that I don't really have a good relationship with. Um, all the others I do, um, I think I've had a good relationship with even this competitor for a long time. And I think we've done lots of good things. Um, I think that, you know, they're, they're losing their way a bit. Um, but, you know, I try and maintain a good relationship with my competition, try and learn from them, try and collab collaborate them with them where possible. 
We sometimes run events where we do it with our competitors for the overall good of the industry. The next thing is we should be focused on our clients more than our competition. I mean, you know what? If you get obsessed about your competition, you lose focus of serving your clients, creating products and services that they want, answering their questions and queries, um, giving them new products and services that meet their own needs. So you have to be careful where you focus your time. Um, but, you know, no one owns a marketplace. No one's entitled to it just because you've been doing it longer. Um, so see your competition as someone who keeps you lean, keeps you motivated, um, keeps you growing, keeps you learning, um, keeps you hungry, um, improves you, uh, improves the overall market, um, and then try and collaborate with them where possible. Now, it's not always possible. And sometimes you have, are going to have a bit of a, a you know, like, it's going to be a bit of pugilism there. And that's okay. Because if a competitor takes the piss, um, I will let them know. Uh, and if they're overly aggressive and, you know, they want to have a fight, then I'll have a fight and I'm going to win. And I have no problem having that fight. Uh, but I'll try my best not to get in that fight. Um, I've, I've, I've heard a few people say recently, oh, uh, these guys have come in selling this stuff, you know, like they're copying me. This is my, this is my space. No, it's not. No one owns any space. No one. No one owns any space. You do what you do. And if clients have a space in their mind that's your brand, then you've earned that. Um, but as soon as you let them down, that's gone. So no one is entitled to anything. You know, you earn you know, you you work smart and hard for what you get. No one is entitled to anything. Um, and I know the instances where I've felt maybe a bit like that because I've earned it um, or, you, you know, like, or because I was trying to think in terms of fairness. I've had a rude awakening and I've had to get to the fact that, you know, like, you know, like they say in sport, they are, you're only as good as your last game. You know, you, you have to keep re-earning your brand, your reputation, your goodwill your position in the marketplace, you know, no, no, you know, you do a new launch, it's not guaranteed that that's going to fly. I mean, Apple, it's not guaranteed that their next launch is going to fly, even though they keep flying, you know, and if you cock things up or you get a bit too self-focused or, you know, you get a bit um, cocky or entitled or complacent, then you're dead. Um, cool. All right. I think that's it, is it? Yeah. All right. So let me summarize then the things that we've covered. If you've just joined the live. So the month, this is month four or module four of my six-month business coaching program. Um, and module four is survival. So that's when you get chaos breakages, um, when things go wrong due to scale. Um, and they might be, for example, uh, the growth paradox, which is the more aggressive you grow, the more things that will break. You have to accept that and you have to sort of balance your growth with the things that will break. You grow too hard, everything can break. Um, growth is exciting and fixing the problems aren't, but you've got to fix the problems and you will leave that trail of destruction the more you grow. As you grow, you need to put um, layers of leadership and management in place and you have to second guess when you're going to get overwhelmed. Uh, and when you're overwhelmed, you're not going to be able to serve your clients and your market uh, the best you could or come up with the ideas that you need to solve the problems that you need for your, um, for your community, for your business, um, for your strategy. A culture shift. So the three main culture shifts I've seen are when you go from just you to having to look after other people. When you go from a boutique dynamic culture to a more corporate one, and then when you go to a bigger corporate one where you don't even know the names of all the people uh, in your office, and then there's layers of management, and they're often the three big culture shifts. We're coming into our fourth one soon, and I'll talk to you about that when I'm ready. Um, the next uh, point that we made is that your perception of freedom is a bit of an illusion because in many ways as a business owner, you are free, you've got autonomy and choice, but you're also highly responsible for staff, for clients, for communities, um, you, you know, and the, the, the bigger you grow, the more responsibility there is. And some people don't like that and they get weighed down by that. Um, so, you, you know, I enjoy that personally. And I know there's going to be hard times ahead, but I like having that responsibility. I like feeling like, you know, a lot of people depend on me. For me, that's a privilege. Um, but a lot of sort of lifestyle entrepreneurs, they find that uh, hard to, to, to wrestle with. The next thing is no one works for you. Everyone works for themselves. And when you have the mentality that you're there to serve your staff and the people who work for you as much as they're there to serve you, you have a partnership rather than, you know, someone who just does uh, what you tell them to because you pay them. And then as soon as they can get a better opportunity, they'll, they'll be gone. Um, then there's managing your emotions and mastering your emotions and, you know, not just saying what you think and actually being planned and strategic about um, being calm and collected under pressure, like that graceful swan who's, you know, paddling away under the water and, you know, managing your online reputation and not spitting and getting aggressive unnecessarily and acting emotional um and you know i can when i see that i think i remember i used to be like that and don't don't by the way confuse passion with acting like a twat or reacting out of control of your emotions by the way if you choose to be aggressive if you choose to you know defend yourself in a staunch manner 
because that's a strategic choice, that's fine. I'm not saying you should be bullied. I'm not saying you should be weak. But you know when you react emotionally and you're not in control because your emotions take control. And that's probably where you're going to make your mistakes. And you can undo all of your great work with, you know, out of control of your emotions. I'm not saying that's easy, but that's something you can always learn to manage and master. New competitors entering the market, the implications of that, learning from them, defending yourself where possible, collaborating with them where possible, not having any entitlement to your marketplace. Um, great. Uh, okay, next, we've got a few more. So you're going to be a pro you're going to hit certain uh, glass ceilings. Uh, and so I'm sure you'll realize there's been stages in your business growth where it's been hard to grow next year. Um, I don't know whether it's been hiring and recruitment where you've had a lot of people leave at certain stages or your turnover and your um, gets harder to grow or your profit margin starts to thin, um, you know, or your own education and development or your own enthusiasm for your business uh, dwindles and wanes. So um, how do you second guess what those glass ceilings are and then how do you bash through them? Um, I found in the training business for progressive property, we've hit a glass ceiling over the last three years where we can't do 50% growth anymore. Some, some, some years we do 5% growth. Now, we've still grown every year, but last year was about 6%, which is small. And so I'm realizing that there's only a certain amount of you know, new people coming into the property training space each year. And it's probably not going to be a hundred million pound a year business. And if I want a hundred million pound a year business, I've got to scale up my business training and my public speaking training and my podcast training and my online training and other, maybe even a new business model completely unrelated, maybe scaling up my letting agency. So there's certainly glass ceilings in terms of markets, in terms of products and the desire for those products. For example, when you launch a new product to the market, there's a load of excitement. But maybe a few years down the line, it, it plateaus off and it gets harder to continually sell that product at the same rate that you did. Now, if you can plan for those and prepare for those as much as you can, because some things will blindside you, then obviously you're, um, you know, you're disrupting and you're um, fixing your problems before they, uh, before they, you know, they reach you, which is a, you know, a great way to be able to um, innovate through recessions and crashes and big competitors coming into the marketplace and that kind of thing. Uh, changes in trend changes in uh, national and global culture, etc. Okay, then we've still got more. So hopefully you're finding this useful. And that's quite a long life. But I thought, why don't we go deep? Um, so the next thing is managing cash. Now, when you take your first bit of cash, where you look at it and go, bloody hell, that's a lot of cash. You think most of that is yours. Now, um, I remember when I interviewed Aston Merigold for my podcast, who's obviously mega famous, was you know, one of the main guys of JLS. And um, he's got a dance school. And he's a bit of an entrepreneur himself. Uh, and I said to him, um, you know, what's one piece of advice that you could share? Uh, maybe that a lot of people don't talk about. And he said, a million pound is never a million pound. And I was like, what do you mean? And he says, well, you know, you might think you earn a million, but your agent gets a cut, you know, and, and this company gets a cut and this company gets a share. And, you know, this company gets a share and your wife gets a share and you might be left with 15% of that million quid. Dom Jolly told me that he got 6% of all revenue for, uh, generated from Trigger Happy TV. And Suzanne Shaw, who was um, in Hearsay, one of the biggest pop, um, you know, engineered um, reality TV pop bands in the world, said that sometimes she was getting um, royalty checks for 26 pence. Um, and I don't know what percent, but I think they got under 20 percent. And I think there was five of them. So that was divided by like five. Like, wow. So, you know, when you generate, you know, when you set, set, make money in business, there's the VAT, there's the corporation tax, there's the personal tax, there's the, there's the employee, um, the national insurance, the employer's national insurance. There's all sorts of overheads and expenses. So managing cash, it becomes a, like a big thing as you grow your business. You should be having a separate account for your VAT because when, you know, like, you know, I remember when we got our first seven figure VAT bill and that was just a massive kick in the kidneys, a donkey, a kidney punch. I think a donkey punch, something else, a kidney punch. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, you're just like, um, it was horrible, but now we move the uh, money into a separate account. Um, we try and get to a year's worth of operating expenses in the bank so that if we didn't do any business for a year, you know, we still can run the, the business. Um, you know, we try and manage our cash flow cycle so that um, ideally we take the money um, as close to delivering the product as possible rather than having to buy stock three and six months in advance, which therefore you can be profitable, but you can go bust because of lack of cash. You know, you have to have more better um, finance and accounting policies and procedures. Um, yeah. So uh, all these things are reality. Uh, you know, you can't just draw your money. You have to have um, profits. 
Uh, and then we like to leave about 50% of the retained profits in the company um, to reinvest in growth and staff and marketing. I think one of our companies has got 700 odd thousand pounds worth of retained profits that we don't draw in it. And every now and again, if Mark and I want a little bit of a payday, we'll draw it. But then we've got to pay tax on it. So we don't always want to draw it. We'll just leave it there. And, uh, you know, maybe in the future, there might be a way we can get it out a different way with good tax planning, you know, or investing in growing the business, which might create more income or buying a, a premises for our building, for, you know, for, for you know, premises for our training and build a premises for our training facilities. We already have a. I think it's a 6,000 square foot training facility over there. We reinvested £35,000 in the studio. Yeah. Now, this is all retained profits that we've, we've reinvested back into the business um, because it, it helps with the growth of the business. Um, and I'd rather do that than, you know, I've, I've got uh, five cars. I think I don't need another car. All right, great. The next thing then that you have, there's disruptions and, you know, breakages and stuff like that as you grow your business, is you get legal issues, you get defamation. Um, you get, uh, so your online reputation that you've got to manage, you get, um, it taken to tribunals by staff. Thankfully, I uh, don't think we've ever been in a, an employment tribunal. We've been in one tribunal with a partner, which didn't go to court, which was good. And we shook hands at the end of it. And we're still actually pretty friendly with um, one of those guys. So that's, that was a good outcome. I'm not saying it won't happen in the future, but these are the realities of growing a business and you have to plan and prepare for that. Uh, you know, make sure that, that you're ready. So this is why your emotional management um, is important. You know, sometimes someone would wrong you in your business. You want to say, right, get out, you're fired. Uh, and you might end up in a tribunal because you upset them. Um, so, you know, we always try and leave it friendly and in a good way with our staff. Um, you know, when they go, it's not always easy because sometimes you might perceive that they um, screw you over. Managing your online reputation. So the reviews and, you know, the complaints and the comments and the the critiques and the critics and the trolls and the haters and the wankers and the defamers and, you know, and all this. Now, by the way, you know, you can't just go online and go, oh, that's, you know, that's a lie. I think libel is written. Um, yeah. There's libel. There's defamation. Uh, there's one more, which is the overall. And then one is written and one is spoken. Um, but you know, so you might get the written version and then you might, oh, you know, like, oh, I'm going to. I'm going to send you a letter from my solicitor. I'm going to sue you. You know, this is defamation. Um, if you go around threatening everyone every time someone writes something, then you're just going to build a load of, um, you know, even worse haters and um, critics. Often the best thing to do is to try and fix the problem or to try and understand it from the critic's point of view. Um, but your reputation management becomes something that's really big. Um, Mike's just made a point. There's so many uh, fake or bad reviews across businesses from competitors. You're right. I, I, at least half of the one-star reviews I've got, I can see they are competitors, um, you know, or trolls. Uh, and, you know, where a lot of people are getting criticised or there's a reputation that, oh, yeah, there's a load of fake reviews in the positive. There's also a load of fake reviews in the negative. But this is the reality of business, and I just have to accept that. And I, the, the way I see it is I can't really do anything about that other than try and report the bad reviews and get them off if possible. And I'll try that if I think it's a fake one. If it's a well-written one, you know, or a fair one, I'll just leave it. But what I have to do is try and serve my community even more and get even more good reviews and, and you know, more goodwill so that that just overwhelms that. Um, yeah, but this is something to think about. Now, you, you should always be managing this. Um, and I think a lot of people are quite surprised how involved and personal I am with dealing with these issues online because, you know, it's not beneath me. This is my brand and my reputation. And I own this. And, I don't, you know, I, want to, I, I, want to, I also want to learn. Sometimes the critics are right. Sometimes they make good points and you need to learn from that. And they, they serve to keep you humble and honest and not making false claims or you know, getting too far ahead of yourself. Next then is balancing multiple streams of income. So sometimes um, if you only have one income stream, you are at risk of disruption, uh, of a recession, of a crash, of your product or service becoming obsolete or a big competitor coming and, you know, owning the space. There's so many risks if you only have one stream of income. Like if you have a job, what if that your job becomes redundant? What if you become ill? You know, what if you don't have the capacity to work properly? But then if you have, yeah, bring it in. I'm, I'm up for that. My Costa has just arrived. Do you know what? Costa should be sponsoring me. I'm serious about this. We should promote them. We should um, approach them. You know, never Starbucks, always Costa. Mm. Um, yeah, anyway, I don't even get a penny from them. Uh, yeah, so um, where was I? Uh, yeah, they are, they are, the, the, the other side of multiple streams of income is if you do too many things and balance too many business opportunities and in income streams, you're overwhelmed. You can't get deep or good enough at enough of them. 
Um, and then therefore you break or you become completely overwhelmed that you just like complete chaos or you don't go deep enough down one model to really make it big. So how do you balance the uh, risk of one income stream, but the overwhelm and the, and the um, sort of paradoxical risk of too many income streams? So um, for me, it's important to have multiple streams of income. Mark and I have eight, maybe nine, but we've built them year on year. We've got good at one thing before we then took on another thing. And when we take on another thing, we only do it a small amount of the time compared to the thing that's already worked. We never turn our back on the thing that's working. We try and systemize the thing that we're doing before we bring in the new income stream. But we've layered up over the years various different products and services and business models, whether it's a letting agency or a property, tra property training business or a business training business or podcasting or authoring um, or our own property portfolio or commercial conversions. You know, all of these are different income streams, but we've been doing this 12 years. But you want to have a plan to bring in new income streams um, and, you know, and sort of maybe add one a year and systemize one a year. Uh, and that, that definitely does de-risk you. It's also important to have multiple streams of leads. Um, you know, a lot of people only get business through word of mouth or referrals. And when people say, oh, I never do any advertising, all my business is from word of mouth. They say it like a badge of honor. You know, they wear it on their epaulets. Mm, look at me. I only ever do advertising. How good am I at business? When in reality, I don't think that's anything to be proud of. That just means, well, if you need to grow, well, then how do you grow? You can't grow. And if you actually had have done some marketing and worked out pay-per-click and, you know, traditional media and social media and, you know, uh, working out how to leverage your LinkedIn profile and all these kind of things, you might have double or triple the business. You might serve a lot more clients. You might have to make a lot more money. Um, so, yeah, new sources of marketing leads and new launches. The reality of business is that marketing is the most important function because marketing generates all the leads. Yes, sales convert the leads and sales turn the interest into money. But without any interest and in leads, there is no um, money to convert. And I know finance and accounting and you know, other parts of the business are important, but without marketing, which generates the leads to make the sales, there is no money to manage. So marketing is the most important function of a business. You always want to be testing new lead sources. So when you, when you see and hear something new, Patreon, oh, what's that? Hear me out, oh, what's that? What's this new pay-per-click engine? Oh, what are these podcast ads? You want to start testing them small on money you can afford, such that if it doesn't work out, well, you tested it and you tried it. And when it does, you're positioned well to go big and increase your spend. Um, I was talking to a guy, a chap called Rich, Rich Hawkins, who's um, doing really well in the e-commerce space. We were talking about ROI on marketing. Um, and some people say, well, how much do you want to spend on marketing? Well, and he said, well, it's not about how much I want to spend. It's about ROI. Uh, and if I get a rubbish ROI, I want to spend nothing. And if I get a great ROI, I'll spend hundreds of thousands. So you want to be building this ROI data into all your marketing and testing it so that you can go big. Because, uh, you know, I spend 120 grand a month on um, um, ads, like Facebook ads. Been 200 grand a month on marketing. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but if I'm getting a good ROI on that, I want that to be half a million. I want that to go up. I don't want to spend less. I want to spend more if the ROI is there. And if it's not there, obviously, I want to reduce that. Or I want to find out where the conversion breakages are or what's not working, fix it or drop it, and then bring in new things I'm testing so that we can scale up. All right, cool. And then, uh, wow, I've done loads on this. This has gone on. This is a lot of content. I'm hoping you're enjoying it. And next then is your ongoing energy and enthusiasm. When you've been doing this three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, how do you maintain your ongoing energy and enthusiasm? So for me, it's variety, but not too much so everything breaks. It's being around people that I enjoy to be around. It's uh, doing, being creative and innovating and you know, having a bit of freedom to go off and do my side projects like podcasts and books, which have actually become big parts of my business, but they were initially side projects. Um, it's about also balancing your life, like uh, health and um, gym, if that's important to you. As I know Mike and a few people watching are in my little WhatsApp accountability group. We all put 500 quid in and we're all training more and eating better and we're all feeling great. Occasionally fatigued, but we feel much better. Um, are you also doing the things that you enjoy in your company and not just all the stuff that drags you down? Um, are you reinventing yourself every few years or disrupting your own boredom or, boredom or loss of enthusiasm? That is on you. You've got to go and seek out the things that re-energize you and keep you enthusiastic um, and passionate. And they're gonna, that's going to dip from time to time. And that's OK. Um, just make sure that when that does dip, you find new things to give you that lease of life. Um, and, you know, I've managed to keep finding those over the last 12 years because I've had my down moments, usually August and December when it's not much to do in the business. Um, yeah. And I, and I have those moments where I feel a bit isolated, alone. I feel like I'm not 
um, inventive and creative and, and I can start then beating myself up a bit and I've got to find something new and exciting. And that might just be a cool conversation with a cool person. You might just need one of those. Yeah, that's exciting me again. It might be a brilliant documentary that you watch on Netflix. The, um, the Alexander McQueen one so inspired me. I mean, it was sad, but it was inspiring. Um, you also, you've got to put yourself in the position to always be able to have that in energy and enthusiasm because the energy and enthusiasm of your corporation, your company of one or a hundred or a thousand comes from you, the MD, the owner, the, you know, the entrepreneur. It comes only from you. Um, you create that and then that goes down through the team. Okay. Uh, penultimately, I think, is the market trends. So, you know, what's happening in the market? How is it evolving? You know, how is Brexit going to affect the property market? How, um, you know, how is a video technology and VR um, going to affect the training businesses online? Um, you know, how are Facebook groups going to uh, affect and WhatsApp groups affect how your community and your clients talk to each other? Um, you know, whatever innovation and change and trend in your market, whether that's evolution or revolution, so evolution is like poor, small incremental changes. Revolution is like Ferrari, completely reinvent, you know, every few years their, their models that look very different. And sometimes one or the other is needed. Constant evolution with occasional revolution is probably a sustainable model for growth, for change, for disruption. Um, yeah. And are you on top of that? And do you like to study that? Do you have more knowledge of that than anyone in your industry? Are you planning for it? Um, are you planning for what you can't plan for? You know, because you're going to get blindsided because you can't plan for all eventualities. Um, does it excite you to learn about that? Have you got enough time to work on that, that big picture stuff in the business? Or are you just like a, you know, like a dog digging a hole with its ass in the air, not knowing where you're digging, but digging harder and harder and harder? All right. And then finally, I think so. Thanks for staying with me. This has been a long one, but I hope you've enjoyed it. And that is creating systems and processes and then leveraging people to implement those systems and processes. So absolutely, fundamentally, right now, you should be documenting everything that you do. You should be getting your staff and your VAs to document everything that they do. If you want double leverage, get them to keep you accountable by documenting what you do, by just talking to them once a week or sending them audio files of what you do. Um, but, you know, everything that you do that only you know how to do that's reliant on you, um, which means that, you know, there's risk in your company and your growth on uh, you, the individual or any individual. Have you got a better system in place? Can you put a system in place, i.e. A, a specific processed way of performing some kind of task or getting an outcome, whether it's a sales call or a marketing strategy plan or Facebook pay-per-click ads or the culture um, or the way you run meetings? These can all be the best way to do it are these seven steps. Uh, and what we tend to like to do is to take all of these big systems and put them into one page checklist because one page checklists are chunked down things that people can, you know, relate to and operate rather than a 500 page manual. Sometimes it's good to have these on audio notes or on um, screen grabs, you know, where you can actually see what's going on on the screen. Click here, click here, click here, do this, do that, um, because that's just easier to follow. But with all of that, you don't want to lose the heart and soul of your business. And you're still a people business. People still perform processes and they still operate systems. You know, you're not McDonald's. You're not like a, a factory, uh, you know, that's fully automated. You know, there's still heart and soul and personality and energy and enthusiasm and values and innovation in your enterprise. So you still want to find great people and you still want people to be autonomous. And by the way, people are more autonomous if you've got good systems and processes that they can follow that are clear, um, that are the right way of performing any task and getting it done in the best possible way. All right, cool. Thanks for tuning in. If you thought this was useful, please do share it. We covered a hell of a lot. Um, so thanks for tuning in. Thanks a lot. Remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Yes.